My thesis is simple. God was completely justified uh, when he ordered the destruction of the, all the Canaanite men, women, and children and animals who remained within the area that Israel was commanded to possess. But before I discuss specifically the Canaanites, I'm going to back up and point out something that is often missing in this discussion. Namely, we must remember that because of Adam's sin, none of his descendants deserve to live. None of his descendants deserve to live because we are all born corrupted by Adam's sin. Consider Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. There is no one who does right, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've altogether become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and misery... Uh, excuse me, are swift to shed blood. Uh, the poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Uh, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What are we to say about a person who has no interest in God, doesn't do good, but lies constantly, slanders constantly, curses constantly, and if they have the opportunity, will murder anyone who gets in their way? What are we to say about such an individual? Wouldn't these people qualify as moral monsters? I think so. But that's the scripture's testimony to about every person outside of the work of the Holy Spirit. Every single person. Therefore, every person is, is born such that without the work of the Holy Spirit, they are moral monsters. And part of human monstrousness is that they accuse God of wrongdoing. Thus, after Israel had indulged in the sins of the Canaanites, God told them in Ezekiel 18, verse 25, Yet you say, the way of the Lord is unjust. Hear, O house of Israel, is it my way that's unjust? Is it not your ways that are unjust? No wonder then that the Lord proclaimed in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Consider also Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. He says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of body and the mind. We were, listen to this, by nature, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Consider again, by nature, we were children of wrath. After all, in Genesis chapter 3, the Lord warned Adam and Eve not to eat from the, fruit of the, or from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, because on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. God didn't add, you will surely die in your sleep at a ripe old age of natural causes. He just said, you will surely die. Thus, every person begins life under the sentence of death. I could quote many more verses, but there isn't time. So I'm going to sum it up simply to say that all people, and that includes all children, are inherently corrupted. And because of that corruption, they are, again, by nature, children of God's wrath. 
Sadly, the lack of understanding regarding the doctrine of original sin has rendered Christianity incomprehensible, or at least much of Christianity incomprehensible to many Christians. That some Christians no longer even hold to this doctrine is odd because as G.K. Chesterton once put it, uh, certain new theologians dispute original sin, which is the only part of Christian theology which can really be proved. And Chesterton was right. Let's review just a smidge of the evidence about the depths of human evil. I'm going to now give some examples of human evil, and I think this is important for us to understand and to fully grasp. We prefer to think that the worst crimes are committed by a few depraved individuals whom we call monsters. But that's not true. I'm going to provide some examples of just of widespread human wickedness from just the last 100 years. In the Soviet Union, the number of people who died in camps in the Soviet Union or who were murdered between 1917 to 1989 is conservatively estimated to be somewhere between 20 to 26 million. Conservatively, 20 to 26 million people were killed or died in the camps. These staggering numbers do include the six million Ukrainian citizens who the Soviets forced to die of starvation in 1932 and 1933 to quell Ukrainian nationalism, the Soviet Union sealed off the Ukraine's borders and then searched their homes and yards and took all their bread and grain and slowly starved them to death. One party official wrote about this, the most terrifying sights were of little children with limbs, skeleton limbs dangling from balloon-like abdomens. Starvation had wiped away every trace of youth from their faces, turning them into tortured gargoyles. Only in their eyes lingered the reminder of childhood. Everywhere we found men and women lying prone, their faces and bellies bloated, their eyes utterly expressionless. It takes a lot of people to starve to death six million people. Do you know what I mean? A few people doesn't do that. It takes a lot of work to starve six million people to death. I ask you about that. Is it inhuman? Is it inhuman to starve six million people to death? No, is the answer. This is what humans do. Humans did this. If we look at the country of Germany, if many of us are familiar, of course, we know that Germ the Germans mil murdered six million Jews. Many aren't aware that they murdered an equal number of those of Slavic descent. We're also uh, we're alre already aware that million people's being experimented on or tortured or shot or gassed. But perhaps most troubling is that Hitler started calling for the death of the Jews no later than August 13th, 1920 which was almost 20 years prior to the beginning of World War II. Hitler in his two-volume Mein Kampf, which was written in 1925 and 1926, said that if the Jews had been held under poison gas, then millions of real Germans would not have died. Many average Germans then may not have actually pulled the trigger or dropped Zyklon B into the gas chambers, but they knew that Hitler wanted to kill the Jews before he came into power. I ask you, is this inhuman? No humans do this. In China, under the Chinese communists, a very conservative estimate is that 26 to 30 million counter-revolutionaries were killed or died in the prison system. Of course, a statistic doesn't capture the horror. 
Consider the words of Mao Zedong, who boasted in a 1958 speech to the Communist Party, what's so unusual about Emperor Shi Hong of the Qin Dynasty? He buried alive 460 scholars only, but we've buried alive 46,000 scholars. When I first heard this, I was just shocked beyond belief. I thought this is impossible. It must be a metaphor for something else. But then I kept reading. Further study revealed that live burial was a preferred method of execution in China. In Japan, within a few weeks beginning uh, in December of 1937, the Japanese army raped, tortured, and murdered over 300,000 Chinese in the city of Nanking. Iris Chang, who wrote the book The Rape of Nanking, says, sums it up in the following. She says, the rape of Nanking should be remembered not only for the number of people slaughtered, but for the cruel manner in which many met their deaths. Chinese men were used in bayonet practice and in decapitation uh, contests. An estimated 20 to 80,000 Chinese women were raped. Many soldiers went beyond rape to disembowel women, slice off their breasts, nail them alive to walls. Fathers were forced to rape their daughters and sons or mothers as other family members watched. Not only did live burials, castration, the carving of organs, and the roasting of people become routine, but more diabolical tortures were practiced, such as hanging people by their tongues on iron hooks or burying people uh, to their waist and watching them get torn apart by German shepherds. I think it was while I was reading The Rape of Nanking over about 15 years ago when it dawned on me that I wasn't reading about what some particular twisted individuals do in trying circumstance. No, this is what humans do. Is this inhuman? No, humans do this. Humans do these kinds of things. This is what humankind does with very little provocation. There is no time for me to talk about Turkey's young Turk, uh, Turks uh, killing between uh, about approximately 1.2 million Armenians. There's no time to talk about the Khmer Rouge killing 2 million Cambodians out of a total population of somewhere between 6 and 7 million. No time to talk about the Guatemalan army killing tens of thousands of Mayan Indians, of torture and murder under South Africa's apartheid, Pakistani soldiers raping and killing three million Bangladeshis, of tens of thousands who disappeared in Argentina, of the 136 people who disappeared under the Franco regime in Spain. There isn't time to talk about the French military police torturing thousands of Algerians, ethnic cleansing in Croatia, Bosnia, and Herzegovina, Hundreds of thousands killed in Indonesia, torture in Brazil, terror campaigns in Ethiopia, dismemberments in Sierra Leone, and the ongoing horrors in Sudan and Darfur where all, over 300,000 people have died, and so on and on and on. I could go on, believe me on this, relating to you one sickening story after another, and sadly, none of it is inhuman. This is what humans do, but of course, talking about other countries isn't enough. Since 1973, the United States has suctioned, scalded, and scraped to death 50 million babies. Consider that it wasn't too long ago that thousands of others, even as late as the ninth month, were partially delivered, only to have their heads pierced and their brains suctioned out to collapse their skulls. The United States has killed more than eight times as many babies as the Germans killed Jews. And it's a majority of Americans that keeps abortion legal. 
But that's not just abortion. Consider American entertainment. One journalist reported that playing the wildly popular game Grand Theft Auto 4 that he stomped and I quote, the last remaining vitality from a hapless construction worker's blood squirting body, unquote, and that the game was, quote, awesomely gratuitous, never has a game felt so narcotic. There's a game out called Rapely that has gone viral. To win, the player must rape a mother and her two daughters and then force whomever he rapes to have an abortion. Of course, women's groups rightly denounce this because of fear that it will encourage rape, but as one person on a gaming blog wrote, posted, how is rape worse than murder? Our games have murder in them all the time. I ask you again, is this inhuman? Also, consider more about American entertainment, that there's a plethora of chainsaw, slasher, mutilation, and other, and other films called gore or splatter cinema. And much of this enjoyment is mainstream. Consider a movie like Silence of the Lambs about a serial killer who eats humans. Surely the movie was well made, but why make it at all? It offered no insight into why people do this. Is any of this inhuman? Well, apparently humans do this, and this is what entertains them. Studies. I'm now going to turn to studies that, that uh, reveal the same thing. Amazed that so many people could commit so much evil, Stanley Milgram conducted a now very famous experiment at Yale University. In response to a newspaper advertisement, two people at a time would arrive at a psychology lab to participate in what appeared to be a traditional learning study. One of them was designated the teacher and the other the learner. The learner was told to learn a list of word pairs and then was strapped into a chair with electrodes attached to his wrists. When the learner made a mistake, the teacher was instructed by the experimenter to give him a shock. The teacher sat before an impressive shock generator with 30 switches ranging from 15 to 450 volts. The, they were labeled slight shock and it kept going all the way up to danger severe shock and then the last three it just said XXX, we don't even know what's gonna happen. Before the experiment began, by the way, the, the teacher uh, received a very real 45-volt shock to impress them of the significance of their actions. As the experiment continued, the teacher was told to increase the shock dosages even though the learner began to beg and scream to be let out. In reality, of course, the learner was just a paid actor and was, uh, uh, who was hired by the experimenter and received no shocks at all. The experiment actually concerned the teacher who administered the shocks. The object of the experiment was to see how many people would administer dangerous shocks. The result was that 65% administered all shocks as, instruct, as instructed, up to 450 volts. 65% administered 450 volts of electricity, even though the people were begging and screaming to be released. Milgram concluded that Auschwitz could have been staffed by the average population of New Haven, Connecticut. By the way, he found no difference between men and women. In 1970, David Mantell conducted a similar experiment in Munich, West Germany. He found that 85% administered all shocks as instructed. Listen to Mantell's conclusion, which is 
dire and depressing. He says, this experiment becomes more incredulous and senseless the further it is carried. It disqualifies and delegitimizes itself. It can only show how much pain one person will impose on another, and yet the subjects carry on. This is at once the beauty and tragedy of this experiment. It proves that the most banal and superficial rationales is perhaps not even necessary, but surely is enough to produce destructive behavior in human beings. We thought that we'd learned this from our history books, perhaps now that we've, we've learned it in the laboratory. Is this inhuman that people would shock each other and continue to shock each other even though they're screaming and begging to be released? No, right? Humans do this. I turn now to the reflections of genocide researchers and victims. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who suffered eight years in a Soviet gulag, uh, asked this question, which I'm going to paraphrase briefly. He says, where did this wolf tribe come from among our people? Is it our own flesh, our own blood? He says, it is our own. And just so that no one too quickly takes on, starts flaunting the white mantle of the just, let each person ask himself, if my life had turned out differently, might I too have become such an executioner? He says, it's a dreadful question if one answers it honestly. And I ask you, isn't Solzhenitsyn right? Isn't our honest answer dreadful? To not agree with a dreadful answer would be to believe that we were somehow born innately superior to all those others who've committed atrocities. Such a belief, however, in our innate moral superiority is without logical or scientific foundation. And to those who might consider themselves to be innately superior, we should point out that believing in one's innate superiority is almost always the father of genocide. Absolutely every, this is, was very interesting to me, absolutely every genocide researcher I've read, and I've read many, has concluded that tens of millions of perpetrators of horrendous evils and hundreds of millions of supporters of those perpetrators are ordinary people. Hannah Arndt, in her book, Eichmann in Jerusalem, a report on the banality of evil, wrote that the main trouble with Auschwitz administrator Adolf Eichmann was that there were so many like him, neither perverted nor sadistic, that they were and still are terribly and terrifyingly normal. Consider the conclusion of historian George Crenn and psychologist Leon Rapoport in their Holocaust research. They wrote, what remains is a central deadening sense of despair over the human species. Where can one find an affirmative meaning to life if humans can do such things? Along with this despair, there may also come a desperate new feeling of vulnerability attached to the fact that one is human. If one keeps at the Holocaust long enough, then sooner or later the ultimate truth begins to reveal itself. One knows, finally, that one might either do it or be done to. If it could happen on such a massive scale elsewhere, then it can happen anywhere. Also, uh, so also uh, Holocaust historian Christopher Browning concluded, I could have been the killer or the evader, both were human. Auschwitz survivor Elie Wiesel wrote, deep down man is not only executioner, not only a victim, not only a spectator, he is all three at once. Auschwitz survivor Primo, Primo Levi wrote, we must consider that these faithful followers, among them the dil diligent executors of human orders, were not born torturers, were not with few exceptions monsters, they were ordinary men. 
also consider the, re- the conclusion of sociologist Harold Welzer. He says, we are left then with the most discomforting of all realities, ordinary, normal people committing acts of extraordinary evil. This reality is difficult to admit, to understand, to absorb. As we look at the perpetrator of genocide and mass killing, we need no longer to ask ourselves who these people are. We know who they are. They are you and I. If you're still not convinced that outside of Christ that otherwise nice people are capable of atrocity, consider the Lord's warning to Israel in Deuteronomy 28, 56-57, that if Israel forsook God's commands and worshipped Canaanite gods, that the Lord would allow other nations to besiege their country, which would lead to food shortages, and then, he says, the most gentle and sensitive woman among you, so sensitive and gentle that she would not venture to touch the ground with the sole of her foot, will begrudge the husband she loves and her own son or daughter the afterbirth from her womb and the children she bears, for she intends to eat them secretly during the siege and in the distress that your enemy will inflict upon you in your cities. Notice, not only will she eat her children, she'll, she'll even be selfish about it. She's not going to share with her husband and her other family members. If we take seriously, then, the analysis of genocide historians, uh, psychologists, researchers, and victims, we must conclude that we were all born Auschwitz-enabled. Many years ago, I first began to study human evil so that no one could disqualify my theodicy. I teach why God allows evil at Biola in our Master of Arts program. That no one could disqualify my theodicy by suggesting that I would glossed over horrendous evils the people perpetrate. But as I read about gang rapes, the shocking of people's genitals, of mutilations, of live burials, and so on and so on, one after another, after another, after another, something strange happened to me. I was struck that evil is precisely human. It's what humans do. Most books on theodicy, most books that try to explain why God allows evil simply haven't gone far enough. Too often it appears that the that theodicists only read enough atrocity to illustrate their writings with horrors for which God must account. But scrutiny reveals a much deeper, more sinister lesson. Humans torture and murder with little provocation. There is a problem of evil, all right, but it isn't God's problem. Rather, it's humankind's problem, and humankind needs to answer for it en masse. Scripture proclaims, by the way, that the wages of sin is death, something Jesus takes for granted. Consider in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, which is, by the way, Jesus' most clear teaching on the problem of evil. Listen to what Jesus said. He says, Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? He says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? He says, I tell you, no, but unless you too will all perish. Notice, by the way, you have an interesting thing here. On the one hand, they gave Jesus the example. Well, Pilate seemed to be killing some people without reason. It's just sort of a terrorist act. People are being murdered. We don't know why. And then Jesus brings up his own 
example of the collapse of a tower seeming to kill people for no good reason. When you put the two together, it sounds a little bit like 9-11 because you have terrorism and the collapse of a tower. But notice what Jesus says. They weren't worse sinners, they're just sinners. D.A. Carson, the, fam- the, the well-known and respected Bible commentator, puts it this way. He says about this passage, he says, First, Jesus does not assume that those who suffered under Pilate or who were killed in the collapse of a tower did not deserve their fate. Indeed, the, col- the fact that he can tell those contemporaries that unless they repent, they too will perish, shows that Jesus assumes that all death is one way or another the result of sin and therefore deserved. Second, Jesus does insist that death by such means is no evidence whatsoever that those who suffered in this way were more wicked than those who escaped such a fate. The assumption seems to be that all deserve to die. If some die under a barbarous governor and others in a tragic accident, it is not more than they deserve. But that does not mean the others deserve any less. Rather, the implication is uh, that it is only God's mercy that has kept them alive. That is indeed absolutely correct. Notice that Jesus' attitude towards death, even of God's chosen people, Israel, is matter-of-fact, it's almost nonchalant. All sinners and their, or all are sinners and their death should be expected, not surprising. Consider similarly in Zechariah 11 verses 8 and 9, where the Lord said, The flock grew tired of, or detested me. The flock detested me and I grew tired of them. And I said, I will not be your shepherd. Let the dying die and the perishing perish. Let those who are left eat one another's flesh. I've told you these human horrors to point out that all of us are born depraved. And that is why Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 says that we were by nature children of wrath. We are born children of wrath. Thus God does no wrong by taking anyone's life at any time. And we as Christian apologists need to defend a robust version of the doctrine of original sin. And I found this, frankly, easy to do. When I present the evidence for human evil, the skeptic is hard-pressed to deny that something is seriously wrong and innately wrong with humankind. Consider even the words of non-Christian Darwinist Michael Roos. He put it this way, I think Christianity is spot on about original sin. How could one think otherwise when the world's most civilized and advanced people, the people of Beethoven, Goethe, and Kant, embraced that slimeball Hitler and participated in the Holocaust? Now, all this being said... Even though no one deserves to live, they still bear the image of God, and God is hopeful of their redemption. Thus, people may not take another person's life unless God so commands. However, God did make it clear in his theocratic kingdom of Israel that anyone who committed murder, adultery, incest, child sacrifice, bestiality, and similar sins must be killed. And this brings us now specifically to the Canaanites. The Canaanites fully indulged their sinful inclinations and thoroughly corrupted themselves. I'm not going to spend much time on the different kinds of sins that the Canaanites committed on Moss. Uh, 
because uh, I've written an article detailing the dep their depravity that's, that you can get from my uh, website, claydjones.net, in the resources section. The article's entitled, we, do not, we Don't Hate Sin, So We Don't Understand What Happened to the Canaanites. And I carefully detail all of the sins and the extent of their sins in that article. And you can get that at no charge by just visiting my, my website, claydjones.net. In that article, I d documented that among the Canaanites, there was incest, adultery, offering children to a bullheaded idol named Molech, homosexual acts, and that bestiality, and that all these were rampant. I'm only going to give you one example to make the point here. In, we have a, in a Baal epic poem, the Canaanite god Baal rapes his sister while she's in the form of a calf 77, even 88 times. Think about that. So Baal committed rape, incest, and bestiality in the same act, and he did it a lot. If that's the God they worshipped, you can expect them to behave similarly, because this is who they worshipped. And indeed, the Canaanites then indulged themselves in their every perverted urge. The trouble for us in, a, in America today is we've now been enculturated that nothing deserves to die, ever, any sin. In fact, mo if you talk to most skeptics, they don't think that anything should ever be capitally punished. The Lord simply doesn't see it that way. Sadly, our societies become inoculated against the horrors of Canaanite sin, so our intuitions are corrupted. When people appeal to intuition, they're making a huge mistake because our intuitions have been corrupted by sin so that we do not judge rightly. Of course the question arises, what if there were people living among the Canaanites who like Lot rejected Canaanite sin? But I really encourage you to consider that Abraham asked this exact question in Genesis 18 regarding the destruction of two Canaanite cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. Consider Abraham's question carefully. Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the Lord of the earth do right? Right? He's saying, you wouldn't kill the righteous. What if there's righteous people there? You're not going to kill the righteous with the wicked. Here Abraham is asking the very question we're discussing this morning. What if there were some righteous people there? Shouldn't they be spared? And the Lord easily, though, in response to Abraham, perhaps for Abraham it seemed too easily, agreed to spare both cities if only ten righteous people were found. Find ten of them and I'll spare both cities. Frankly, I do not know how God could make it clear that he's also concerned about justice when it comes to the Canaanite cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Does, the, does God need to illuminate, supernaturally illuminate this passage in everybody's Bibles with blinking red neon lights? I ask you, again, I really mean it, how does God make it clearer when it came to the Canaanite cities of Sodom and Gomorrah that he knows who will or will not repent? What would he have had to have added to this dialogue to make it clear that he's concerned with what we think, that, that, that we think he's acting justly, and that he knows who would or would not repent? 
But of course, if you remember the story, when the angels arrive at the city, the men try to, of the city try to rape them. And not, not only does God not find anyone who will repent, the passage reveals that Lot himself won't leave. And so the angels have to uh, take Lot and his family by their hands and all but drag them out of the city because they're not going to go either. Later, Lot's own daughters get him drunk to have sex with him. And so even Richard Dawkins, in a surprising moment of moral clarity, writes, If this dysfunctional family was the best Sodom had to offer by way of morals, some might begin to feel a certain sympathy with God for his judicial brimstone. Indeed. Many skeptics, many skeptics complain that children are killed, but that's based on an usually unspoken premise that God shouldn't have killed the children because that wouldn't give them the chance to reject Canaanite sin. But this too relates back to the entire dialogue with Abraham and God. God knows who will or will not repent of his or her sin, and if he concludes that the children would have grown up and acted similarly, he's perfectly right to institute capital punishment. When I teach a class on why God allows evil, I spend more time on this. And I don't think people spend enough time thinking through what it would be like for kids to grow up in a family where, they kill the, the, where the parents actually killed their, their, their parents, their birth parents. Talk about teenage rebellion. You'd never be able to close your eyes while you slept because they were going to kill you in the middle of the night. If God wanted to rid the land of Canaanite ways, he couldn't have them growing up wanting to imitate their birth parents with whom they bonded. Also, children who have been seduced at an early age would bring those seductions into their new households. Jeannie and I were not able to have children. We took in foster children for years, we, several of them in the preteen teenage years. One of them, at least one of them, was molested. Uh, and one day we got a call from the, the church junior high camp and this woman who was calling us, one of the church leaders, was extremely concerned that our uh, foster daughter had, in the dance contest, had done an erotic dance. It's a good thing there wasn't a pole on the stage. And I'm not kidding you. I am not making this up. They're going to bring their behaviors with them. Further, imagine, I, again, I just, I can't imagine what teenage rebellion would look like. Wouldn't growing up the child ask, so what parents or what practices did my parents do that resulted in your killing them? Do we have any logical reason to believe that any of these children would not have carried on Canaanite sin and so deserved capital punishment? Let me just say that again. Do we have any logical reason to believe that any of these children would not have carried on Canaanite sin and so deserved capital punishment. If we don't have any logical reason, then God, who does know the future, is doing nothing wrong by taking their lives early. Also, although it isn't a given, I agree with Paul Copan that it's at least possible that these children were taken into heaven when they die. And if that's the case, then God actually removed them from further harm. This is not genocide then. Uh, uh, frankly, I think it is completely mistaken to talk about it being genocide at all. This is capital punishment. It's justified capital punishment because people that do these things deserve to die. The best illustration that the Canaanite removal was not genocide but capital punishment, by the way, is that the Lord exacted ex precisely the same punishment on Israel. God warned Israel that if they allowed the Canaanites to live among them, that they would then be, themselves be corrupted, 
And then the Lord would send others to kill them, and in, in the same ways that he sent them to kill the Canaanites who did not flee the land. And that's what happened. Israel allowed the Canaanites to live among them. Israel was then corrupted. And much then, much of the second half of the Old Testament is God sending prophets to Israel, warning them of coming destruction because he said, I told you you had to kill these people. I warned you that if you didn't, you'd intermarry with them. I warned you that you'd start committing the same sins. And I warned you that if you did that, I was going to come for you. And now here I come. That's basically, my brothers and sisters in Christ, what the entire second half of the Old Testament is about. And that's what happened, exactly. So God tells Jeremiah in Jeremiah 5, 1 through and 2, go up and down the streets of Jerusalem, look around and consider, search through her squares. If you can find but one person who deals honestly and seeks the truth, I will forgive this city. Does that sound a lot like Sodom and, or God's talking to Abraham regarding Sodom and Gomorrah? If you can find one person who acts righteously, I will forgive the entire city. Just find me one. Jeremiah went up and down the streets of Jerusalem. He couldn't even find one person. And so the Lord brought destruction upon Jerusalem. Notice again, by the way, that the Lord is concerned to let people know that he is acting justly. Jeremiah searched, he didn't find anybody, and then God ordered their destruction. Throughout the Old and New Testament, we find that those who refuse to repent of sin always deserve to die. Always. Not maybe, not sometimes, not kind of, always. Consider also Ezekiel 14, 12 through 23. It's the son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply and bread of bread and send famine upon it and cut it off from, cut off from it man be and beast, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord. Or he says, if I send wild beasts through the land and they ravage it, or if I bring a sword and I cut up off from among it man and beast, or if I send a pestilence into the land and pour out my wrath upon it with blood to cut off from it man and beast. For thus says the Lord, how much more will I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, and wild beasts, and pestilence to cut off from it man and beast. But behold, some survivors will be left in its son and sons and daughters who will be brought out before uh, be brought out behold when they come out to you you will see their ways and their deeds and you will be consoled by the disaster that I brought upon Jerusalem they will console you for you will see their ways and their deeds and you shall know that I have done nothing without cause that I have uh, done in it declares the Lord in other words I'm going to leave some people alive so that you can look at them and you're going to see that they're just as wicked as I said they were Notice several things. First, Israel endured this precisely because they committed the sins of the Canaanites. Second, again notice the Lord cares that we know that those who he killed are wicked. We have no logical basis to intuit that some would have repented if given the opportunity. Human in intuition is itself corrupted and on its own readily commits Auschwitz, not forbids it. 
Third, the Lord appears indifferent to whether someone dies by famine, sword, disease, or by nature red in tooth and claw. Fourth, the Lord clearly declared uh, uh, that Jerusalem was completely and utterly corrupted, and as such, everyone deserved to die. Fifth, of course these destructions kill men, women, and children. The Lord even specifies in Ezekiel 5.17 that the beasts will kill children, will bereave the land of children. Six, these horrors cannot then be considered metaphor. They are not hyperbole. That simply will not work. In conclusion, let me make a couple of points. Three, in fact. I have several, several important things here. First, all men, men, women, and children are severely corrupted by virtue of their being born in Adam, and none of Adam's descendants deserve to live. None of them do. Rather, God does no wrong in taking their lives at any time he appoints. Second, God has made it plain that he knows who would or would not repent. Third, since God knows who would or would not repent, if he's decided uh, that there is no one in a particular group of people that would repent, then we have no reason to think that God acted wrongly for ordering their destruction. If God knows that the already corrupt descendants of Adam will act out Canaanite sin, then it makes no difference whether that person is 23 years old or 23 months old. Also, don't we have a similar situation in Noah's flood? Certainly there's no possible hyperbolic reading which would lead us to conclude that women and children and infants weren't also drowned. You can't read that in a hyperbolic sense. That simply will not work. God took this action because he concluded in Genesis 6-5 that man's wickedness on the earth was great and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart were only evil all the time. If God was righteous to kill the, all of the women and children and men in the deluge then God certainly can be every bit as righteous in ordering the total destruction of the Canaanites. Because again, God knows who would or would not repent. He knows who's wicked or not. Of course this all disturbs and unsettles us, but there's a cosmic lesson here for free beings, and it is this. Hate sin. Adam and Eve committed a sin that plunged us, their descendants, into darkness. That's the bad news. Sin always seduces, always corrupts, and always warrants a sentence of death. That's the bad news. Thankfully, however, there is good news. We preach the good news. We need to preach the bad news more than we do, but we preach the good news. We proclaim that Jesus paid the price for our sin, and by trusting Jesus, we can be adopted into a new family, receive from Him a new nature, the infilling of the Holy Spirit, and we can then reign with Christ forever and ever. I wish I had a lot more time to talk about the good news. <laughs> Let me just simply leave it at that and get, open it up now uh, for any, we have just a couple of minutes for any questions that anyone might have. Yes? Uh, two questions, I think they're related. One, do you think that the Canaanites were more evil than any other group of people in human history? I think that, oh, sorry, go ahead. God commanding 
Uh, they had given themselves over to evil in unique and more thorough ways. There's a dialogue, so th they had, were acting out evil much more thoroughly than, than, any, than other groups. It's not that other groups weren't committing some of the sins. I really encourage you and everyone else, if you want to read the detail of Canaanite sin, which should be revolting to everyone, my article, We Don't Hate Sin So We Don't Understand What Happened to the Canaanite, will do it, please. It's free for crying out loud. I'm not selling it. Uh, but I, I encourage you to look at it. They were corrupt through and through. And remember the dialogue earlier where the Lord says, I'm not going to destroy these peoples yet because their sin hasn't reached full measure. So there's another place where he's saying, I'm going, you know, they, they haven't gone and committed as much sin as they could commit yet. I'm going to let them go on and then I'm going to destroy them. Another question. Yes. Right. So, um, do you, do we, uh, are we, is it biblical to sort of a um, project that kind of paradigm of time even nowadays? Um, oh, we're almost complete. We're, we're heading down the path of being completely. Possible, like, collective judgment? Oh, it's coming, surely. Read Revelation. <laughs> I mean, it's coming. Sure. Yes, uh, I actually blogged about this recently. I do not think we should say that a particular pl or plague disaster comes on a particular city because of a particular sin. But in fact, my last blog was that, that disaster is always a call to repentance. I, you can just, that's a ClayJones.net, that's free, uh, too. Okay, uh, I've got to go. Uh, time is up. I do, I'm glad to answer your questions, however, so I'll, I'll, be, I'll be hanging around. Biola University offers a variety of biblically-centered degree programs, ranging from business to ministry to the arts and sciences. Visit biola.edu to find out how Biola could make a difference in your life.